Hello and welcome to In Unison. I'm Zane Fiala. And I'm Giacomo G. Gregoli. And this is our podcast all about new choral music and the composers, conductors, choristers, and administrators who bring it to life. Let's start the show! Hey everyone, welcome back to In Unison. We know you've been missing content from us, and we apologize for the brief hiatus, but we're back with an all-new season, and we hope to be bringing you new content every couple of weeks throughout 2023. For this first episode of Season 6, we're chatting with both a returning guest, conductor, composer, and director Carmina Schiletz, as well as a first-time guest, the executive artistic director of Bay Area Ensemble Kitka, Shira Sion. In late February, Kitka will be premiering a brand new production created by Carmina called Baba, and that will be the primary subject of this episode's conversation. But we want you listeners to be familiar with the sonic landscape that Kitka creates, so things make more sense along the way. Some of Carmina's music in Baba is inspired by the isopolyphony that is indigenous to the highlands of Epirus, a border region between Albania and Greece. This first track is a tune that incorporates some of that isopolyphony, mashed up with an American sacred harp tune. Here is a recording from Kitka's most recent CD, Evening Star, of Fly Trembling Spirit by Kelly Atkins. Today on In Unison, we are joined by two guests. First, we have a conductor, composer, director, and author, Carmina Schiletz. And joining her is Shira Sion, the artistic and executive director of the San Francisco-based vocal ensemble, Kitka. Now, those of you who are fans of In Unison, and I hope there's lots out there, may remember that we had the pleasure of speaking to Carmina 
Wow, almost a year ago on Season 5, Episode 3. But to refresh your memory, Carmina was the artistic director of Carmina Slovenica, a Slovenian production house that covers a variety of activities, including the production of concert and stage projects, festivals, publishing, and educational programs. Carmina has done a ton of research into the music for voices, and her projects combine multiple genres as well as different musical eras. By merging the old and the contemporary, these projects create exciting new contexts in music and consistently uplift both modern and early unknown Slovene authors. Carmina's work proves that vocal ensembles can be versatile artistic bodies, superb instruments constantly opening up new creative spaces. Carmina has received the International Robert Edler Prize for Choral Music for her exceptional contribution to the world choir movement, and from 2018 to 2019, she was a fellow at the Harvard University Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. Carmina works broadly as an artistic advisor for choral music, is, in a, is a university professor of conducting, and often serves as a guest conductor and jury member at festivals and competitions. Welcome back, Carmina. Thank you. I'm happy to be back as well. And joining us for the first time, but hopefully not the last, is Shira Sion, Kitka's executive and artistic director, who has been active as a professional performer, producer, arts administrator, and cultural worker since her teens. Uh, she, she joined Kitka as a vocalist and board member in 1988 and became the organization's executive artistic director in 1997. Born into a musical Eastern European Jewish family with roots in Ukraine, Russia, Poland, and Belarus, she was classically trained as a noboist. She received her conservatory training at the Hart School and Tanglewood Institute. Shira was the winner of a Young Arts grant, which subsidized her education at Wesleyan University, where work in contemporary composition, extended vocal techniques, and ethnomusicology led her to discovery of Balkan and Slavic traditional singing. She holds Advanced Study Certificate from the Moscow Conservatory's Folklore Program and has studied with traditional song masters and directed cultural exchange programs in Bulgaria, Serbia, Georgia, Armenia, Turkey, Russia, Ukraine, and Poland, as well as in Jewish and Romani communities in the U.S. and abroad. In addition to her activities with Kitka, Shira worked with the Women's Philharmonic for 14 seasons and has coached many artists and organizations in the areas of creative programming, concert and recording production, community outreach, fundraising, and strategic planning. Earlier career positions include work with fantasy writer Ursula Le Guin's Uttermost Productions and posts at the Bay Area Music Archive, SF Rock and Roll Museum, World Music Institute, New Music America Festival, and Real Art Ways. She has also been a world ethnic women's music radio show host on a variety of community-supported radio stations on the East and West Coasts. And for those of you who aren't familiar with uh, uh, Kitka, uh, and I am, it's one of my absolute favorite organizations. I've known you since my my college days, I think, when we were singing uh, Kaval Sfiri and some other <laughs> tunes. I think you were the first who taught us those things. But perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about Kitka in your own words. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so Kitka uh, was established in 1979. It was originally an outgrowth of an international folk music and dance ensemble based in San Francisco called Westwind International Folk Ensemble. And as the lore goes, uh, Westwind was in the process of staging a uh, Bulgarian traditional dance suite and the musical accompaniment was an a cappella um, piece called Ivan Irina Dumashe, arranged by Filip Kutev, who was one of um, the great Bulgarian choral conductors and arrangers of Bulgarian folk music um, for uh, Soviet-era state-sponsored um, choirs. And, um, and so a group of women were convened to sing Ivan Irina Dumashe, and it was just such a beautiful piece that um, folks were just smitten with this this form, the style of singing, the style of harmonization, which involved very close um, harmonies that are considered dissonant to um, Western classically music, Western classical music oriented ears. Um, also, a style of vocal production, which was. Um, kind of a contrast to Western bel canto choral singing, a much more natural sort of embodied 
speech-oriented kind of vocal uh, production that's rooted in um, songs to accompany agricultural work outdoors. Um, so that was the beginning of Kitka. Um, and then over the years, uh, it became incorporated as its own nonprofit uh, women's vocal ensemble in Oakland um, and became uh, sort of known for our concert performances of uh, traditional polyphonic music from the Balkans, also from Russia, Ukraine. Then we branched into the Caucasus, singing music from Georgia and Armenia and La Zona. And, um, and then sort of since I started um, making my mark on the organization beginning in 1988, um, uh, I started commissioning new uh, music from various composers from all over the world to um, who take their inspiration from the sort of vocal palette that comprised uh, Kitka's more traditional repertoire. So since then, um, we've had the privilege of working with many wonderful composers, including Carmina, uh, Eric Banks, uh, Meredith Monk, David Lang, Chen Yi, Pauline Oliveros, the list goes on and on. Um, and so that's always been kind of a, a, a unique trademark of our group as we sort of reach back to the roots of the oldest traditional polyphonic music forms and to the furthest tips of the branches of um, new music for women's voices. And um, while normally we uh, focus on concert performances where we stand in uniform costumes in a nice semicircle and sing in churches and um, with relatively simple performance uh, aesthetics, we um, every four or five years or so, we venture into something more ambitious and more theatrical. And so over the years, we've done a number of multidisciplinary collaborations with um, choreographers, theater makers, uh, directors, filmmakers, and our current project with Carmina uh, Baba is our current massive multidisciplinary adventure. How exciting. <clears throat> I wanted to ask a, a question before we get into Baba specifically. I just, I came across a word that I had never seen before when I was reading about Kitka. Isopolyphony. Can you define isopolyphony for me? Sure. Um, isopolyphony actually isn't that foreign a thing for Americans, because if you listen to kind of Southern, um, pentatonic congregational singing, uh, it's very similar to that. So it's basically a form of harmony singing, a traditional form based on the pentatonic scale um, with a pretty strong kind of droney element. Uh, it has kind of a bluesy um, feel. Uh, and it is a form of polyphony that's indigenous to the Epirot region um, in Eastern Europe, which is a highland region on the border of um, northern Greece and southern Albania. And it's a form of music that we became enamored of um, over many years of working with some um, Greek and Albanian uh, master traditional singers, um, in particular Christos Govetas and um, Merita Halili, uh, who we've studied with at uh, various Balkan music and dance workshops, as well as um, having invited them for extended master artist residencies with the ensemble in the Bay Area. Wow. And when uh, Carmina proposed this idea of Baba, um, even though the sworn virgin phenomenon isn't as common in that particular mountain region. It's it's very close nearby. And um, that was my husband's phone. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, and it's just such a cool form of of collective singing. So yeah. we proposed it to, uh, to Carmina as kind of one of the ingredients in cooking the sonic world of of the Baba menu. <laughs> Ooh, ingredients of cooking a sonic world. I like that. <laughs> my, wife, my wife's a chef, so that really uh, rings true for me. 
Well, as uh, as we've mentioned a couple times now, we're going to be discussing this upcoming world premiere of a piece that <clears throat> Carmina has written called Baba, The Life and Death of Stana. Did I pronounce all that correctly? Yes. Okay, good. Which is a new opera by Carmina Schiletz, and it's premiering here in San Francisco February 23rd through the 26th of this year, 2023. And you can find more information about that, of course, at kitka.org. Um, but that's the main focus of this conversation we're going to have today. So I'm going to read a little bit of information about Baba itself. And then uh, we'll get into a nice conversation about the piece and where it came from. So Baba is inspired by real and imagined stories of Balkan sworn virgins, which are women who live as men after taking vows of chastity and celibacy. The tradition of sworn virgins is rooted in a centuries-old social code of law present in remote rural regions of Albania, Montenegro, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Kosovo, and Serbia. Born as women, life circumstances, including the loss of male relatives in blood feuds or a desire to escape an oppressed arranged marriage, leads these individuals to become men to gain the honors, rights, privileges, and freedoms of community patriarchs. The motives for this gender transformation were traditionally social responsibility and family honor, as opposed to sexual preference or feelings of being male by nature. Baba brings to light a disappearing practice of women sacrificing their sexuality and transforming themselves into men as a means of survival in an isolated, dangerous, impoverished, and intensely patriarchal and gender-binary part of the world. An innovative, non-narrative take on Balkan epic story-singing traditions, Baba explores themes of gender, otherness, choice, virginity, sexual identity, and the complexities of interpreting these Balkan gender transformation stories through a contemporary, liberal, Western lens. That's a, that's a, a very fascinating and complex uh, thing to base a piece of music on, and I am so fascinated. I remember discussing this with Carmina way back when we inter interviewed her the first time, and I'm so glad that we're coming full circle to be able to talk about it again now. My head is exploding with a thousand different questions, but I think the first thing that, that sort of is apparent or comes to mind is that the, the, the pairing, the combination of uh, Carmina's work and this story and Kitka seems so completely natural and so obvious now, but obviously these things don't just happen accidentally. So maybe as a little bit of an icebreaker, you can tell us how this collaboration first came to life. How did the two of you first hear of each other's work and how did this collaboration first come to be? Well, actually, uh, I was familiar about uh, Kitka's work for decades and about, let's say, 15 or 16 years ago, uh, we started to have more contacts and I was uh, having workshops for Kitka and we were in touch for many, many years. And then suddenly when Shira finds out that I'm developing this project and that I'm at Harvard making research, we started to discuss option. What about if this final product of this research is actually a theater piece for Kitka? So uh, I was also very enthusiastic about this idea because I was uh, happy to imagine having all these uh, peculiar, interesting, amazing uh, voices which uh, are part of Kitka, Kitka Ensemble. So I think that um, this collaboration uh, came out as a natural process of long-lasting friendship, and uh, I think we admire each other work for many time. And I, I'm happy that now finally this uh, uh, moment of creating something together is happening. Yeah, it seems like a very natural collaboration that just it was is. almost like it was destined. It was inevitable to a certain degree. To a certain degree, sure, yes. Uh, what is really uh, new for us is that we are also meeting each other in non-musical world, meaning doing other theatrical aspects, moving around uh, uh, spoken, including spoken word into the entire process. And these are 
challenging new territories which we are uh, exploring together. And Shira, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you first came across Carmina's work and what was the impetus to say, wow, yes, we've, we've, got, to, we've got to work together on this project. Um, I discovered Carmina's work in 2006. Um, I think it was possibly through um, Bob Geary, uh, another Bay Area Coral Connection, um, who has collaborated with um, Carmina uh, Slovenica with his Piedmont choirs doing cultural exchange uh, programs. So I went to the Carmina uh, Slovenica website and was just mind blown by what I found there. Um, the uh, spectacular theatrical, innovative treatment of voices and bodies and costumes and scenography and color and text, uh, I was just, I was just agog <laughs> at what I found. And having been a fan of um, performance makers like Meredith Monk and um, Bob Wilson and this sort of kind of abstract, non-narrative um, treatment of vocal theater, I just said, this is, this is somebody we've, we've got to meet and connect with somehow. And I believe it was that uh, same year or possibly uh, in early 20, 2007, Carmina was traveling in the U.S. and so we arranged for her to come to the Bay Area and uh, do some workshops with us, which we did. Um, and at that time, uh, we said, well, someday we just have to collaborate somehow. And all these years later, um, we were able, well, I'll backtrack a little and say, uh, we stayed in touch um, and would sometimes meet in New York at a performing arts conference or if she was out here traveling, visiting Bob. Uh, and we would just kick ideas around for collaborative projects. And we had a number of back and forths about that. Um, and it was finally in late 2018, we were we were chatting on Facebook and Carmina mentioned that she was going to be uh, doing a year-long fellowship at the Harvard Rad Radcliffe Institute. And so I said, well, what, what are, that's amazing. Congratulations. What are you going to be working on there? And she mentioned that she'd been um, thinking a lot about this social phenomenon of sworn virgins of, of the Balkan Highlands. And I said, well, that's just crazy because I'd been thinking about this uh, topic as well ever since Eric Banks, another composer that we had collaborated with, shared an article with me back in 2014, I think it was, uh, which uh, shared these incredible photographs by uh, Jill Peters of Albanian sworn virgins. And I said, maybe this is our collaboration. Maybe this is, maybe this is the the project we've been looking for all these years. Um, and as it happened, I think it was about 48 hours after we had been eye chatting, I said, you know, there is this funding opportunity out here in the Bay Area. It's a total long shot. It's a highly, highly competitive program. Um, but the, the letter of intention is due in two days, you know, should we just cast our hat into the ring with this with this collaborative idea? And and Carmina said, "Sure, go for it." And we had like a bit of a frantic exchange of texts and ideas and concepts that going back and forth through email and Facebook Messenger. And um, I cranked out the proposal and was sort of kicking myself, you know, saying, oh, if only I had had like another month, you know, to really yeah. hone this and really form the concept. And I, I almost didn't press submit, but you know, the deadline was at midnight and it was 1158 and I just sort of closed my eyes and grimaced and pressed the submit button. <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold, we made it through, I think it was five elimination cuts um, to determine the Hewlett 50 um, awardees. And um, amazingly, our project was was selected. Um, but then uh, I think we were originally planning to premiere the piece in early 2021. And then 
COVID upended everyone's best laid plans and the project got postponed and postponed again and postponed again. And we weren't able to do sort of the um, collaborative residencies that we were planning for 2020 and Zoom proved to be just way too frustrating a medium to uh, to work the way uh, being now in Carmina's methodology of working, it's really impossible to imagine how we could have made much progress on Zoom. So we just waited and waited and waited. And then there were a few changes of venues. And um, but uh, finally, finally, um, she's been able to be here working with us. We've been lucky enough to get two residencies, one with the Berkeley Repertory Theater's ground floor program. And uh, currently we're working at Mills College at Northeastern University, uh, performing artist in residency program, which have been incredible gifts for us because Kitka doesn't have a big theatrical performance space. Um, we lost our rehearsal space during the pandemic and have been rehearsing in people's living rooms <laughs> while we're looking for a new performing space. And the scope of Baba requires lots of space, lots of resources, um, lots of technical elements, scenic elements. So having the support of Berkeley Repertory Theater's ground floor and Mills College at Northeastern University has been a tremendous gift to the project. I, despite the delays and obviously the sort of uh, forced timeline of these grants and things like that and the stars all aligning to make it happen, I guess a question for you, for you both, maybe for Carmina first, why this story now? It feels very obvious to me to sort of step back and see the relevance maybe contextually and other things going on there. But I wonder for the two of you, why, why tell this story now? Well, actually, uh, when I started to make this uh, research, which was uh, at the beginning very easy because there were uh, quite a lot of... Um, recordings done, uh, articles written around the world. There were uh, uh, numbers of uh, journalists and anthropologists traveling recently to these areas and try to record um, this phenomenon into certain words. Um, and I was like, okay, that's that's uh, almost popular culture right now in this moment when uh, a similar um openness into the world of choice is happening around the world with this liberal way of uh making decisions about many things in our lives are coming to the light and uh, my first starting point was wow but uh, there is another uh interesting phenomenon where it's quite opposite there is no freedom in this choice but during uh this long period while I was uh, inhabiting this uh, space and mind with idea of uh, observing and, and trying to understand a phenomenon of, of soul virgin, I completely changed my mind. Um, and I hope that also my collaborators will at some point uh, be closer to this idea, which is a little bit uh, different uh from my starting point, what I want to point out is that I would like to communicate actually this problematic representation of phenomenon of the Swore Virgins. And I would like to communicate as well this um, uh, overgeneralized and very, very often also very offensive image, uh, which is in this popular imagination. Uh, two words. First of all, Balkans. We have heard uh, in the intro you read that they are in um, impoverished and dangerous mountains or places. My opinion is who we are to to say that these are dangers. What is the standard to 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 declare that some place is dangerous? I mean, I feel more. Uh, <laughs> in danger here than in any of my travels to the Balkan high mountains where these war virgins are living. So there are always this kind of um, 
you know, Western, uh, let's say, Western view over some parts of the world, which is kind of a patronizing in a way, because we have uh, knowledge to communicate, we have science behind, we have anthropology, we have uh, all these uh, uh, fields of um, science who analyze other parts of the world with our own standards. But we too often don't really hear and understand uh, cultures, phenomenons, people which we are researching just because we are just a little bit arrogant in this position of knowing, of knowledge. But there are other ways how to try to understand other phenomena, other cultures, which are beyond Western data, collecting, cataloging, analyzing. So that's a, that is a little bit of my perspective after so many years being in this uh, close contact with all kinds of resources which I studied. As I said, I started with, wow, that's interesting. But later I, I start to doubt is my uh, view and my understanding is correct. And um, I still have a lot of questions. Uh, and I don't have any answer, but at least I think I have better questions than four years ago. What it is to be a small virgin? What is this identity? Does it does she really subordinate to the some imperatives of the community, or does she take things in her own hands, and so on? <laughs> And I will say that um, the project description that, that you read earlier was, I think, an earlier one um, that preceded uh, a number of dialogues that Carmina and I have had, and we've been mm. constantly updating our copy and how we talk about what this is. And I think Carmina's point is really well taken, you know, um, for example, this word dangerous, that this part of the world is dangerous, um, you know, and I think originally when I... Uh, was writing that copy, I was, you know, referring to this history of blood feuds, particularly um, in Albania, which often led to a woman becoming a sworn virgin. Aww. But when you think about it, you know, I live in West Berkeley, where where there's gang violence and gunshots heard every weekend, you know, and, you know, just what's happened in California this week, you know, uh, Carmina's point is really well taken, you know. We live in a very dangerous part of the world. And and also these questions of choice, uh, being here in the Bay Area, which we like to think of as being really on the cutting edge of freedom of choice, freedom of expression, freedom of um, uh, how one presents themselves in terms of their gender identity. And yet, um, our, in our current political climate here in the States, you know, these freedoms are so on the verge of completely being um, grabbed and taken away. I mean, it's it's something that perhaps we take for granted in our our little liberal bubble, but uh, I think we're very uh, we sometimes become conveniently unaware of of how tenuous um, these these freedoms are. I think that that Bava actually holds a mirror to our society right now. Uh, it looks that we are following uh, a story from from the history, from the past. That there is a certain curtain we are observing to the stage from you know things happening somewhere else in the mountains of Balkans. But I think that. What we try to achieve is that audience is actually aware of the fact that what they're watching is not the only place and not the only time, so that they have re enough space for reflection, you know, that this mirror from other culture is actually helping us to see our present life and our present moments uh, from different perspective, I hope. I hope. <laughs> I, 
I'd actually love to uh, dig into that a little bit, these, this sort of notion of the cultural differences apparent within the story and, and within the process of rehearsing, because I imagine that m- most of the members of Kitka are Bay Area folk who've you know lived here perhaps most of their lives, or at least sort of have a Western lens on this project. And um, I want to sort of pull out one of the quotes here, which is, crucially, the self-professed motives of sworn virgins are more often than not social responsibility and family honor as opposed to sexual preference or feelings of being male by nature. And this feels to me like an almost distinctly European notion or maybe something that, that feels more foreign to a Western audience. The idea that we find our individualism you know, subjugated to, through service and responsibility versus beginning within the self. The latter feels much more American, humanist, maybe much more Walt Whitman, if you will, song of yourself, things like that. How did that notion play? Like, what what did you discover in the rehearsal process with the performers and 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 Shira, your process as well, of of this sort of entire notion of of gender and responsibility? I mean, there's sort of two questions in there. One is just the notion of the subjugation of the individual for the the, the community at large, and then the, sec, the tucked within that is even this notion of the individual's gender and the definition of that. How did those two questions play with the the performers in the rehearsal process? Mm. Well, this is this is something we talk about constantly. Um, I'll start by saying that when we embarked upon this project, um, we were feeling a little um, ill at ease or confused about how we, as a primarily uh, cis female gendered group, um, represent sworn virgins. And um, and in our conversations with Carmina, it sort of became clear that the way this piece is navigating the question of representation is by it not being so much about us acting out, you know, we are this, we are a sworn virgin, but it's it's really a question, as Carmina said, it's it's about us. As, a, as observers, as witnesses, as, as fellow human beings witnessing this phenomena from our, our you know, contemporary Bay Area feminist point of view. Um, I would say also that your question about the rehearsal process has been very um, thought-provoking because I think the way Carmina works with her ensembles, and correct me if I'm I'm wrong, Carmina, it's very much about uh, the choir or the ensemble becoming one collective body um, that encompasses different characters, different personalities, different voices, different vocal colors, um, different physicalities. But really, um, a lot of the training uh, that we have been immersed in in the creation of Baba has been sort of trying to really emphasize sort of the the connections between the individuals as opposed to each individual performer as her own contained expressive body entity force. So it's been a very interesting, very um, challenging, exciting, intriguing stretch of our performance practice. And um, the piece is still very much taking and finding its ultimate form. It's shifting on a daily basis. And um, it's almost been sort of uh, like a, a kind of a boot camp where our, where our sense of ego, our sense of self is being kind of <laughs> dismantled every day because we thought we had memorized our lines and our parts and our solos and our blocking. Um, but then it all changes and it's much more about being <laughs> sensitive to each other and the moment and and whatever is being um demanded or required as the creative process unfolds rather than you know I did my job I know my part I'm you know I know how to lock my third in this chord and it's it, and it's a much more holistic um uh form of working that's much more multi-dimensional there's there's 12 of us to to constantly be uh uh what's the word interlocking and interacting and responding uh to 
So uh, yeah, it's been very different than our, our our typical rehearsal processes, even even in comparison to other devised theater projects that we've developed in the past. This might be a good place to <clears throat> talk a little bit about this interdisciplinary style that Carmina has come up with called Coregia, which we did talk about on our previous episode of In Unison when we talked to Carmina the first time. Um, but maybe it'd be a good time for us to have a quick little refresher. So Carmina, could you tell us just a little bit about Coregia and how you adapted that style, that method for this, um, this use here with uh, Kitka? The concept, the artistic concept of my work uh, uh, in music theater world is that all elements of the performance are developed simultaneously. That is a biggest difference between me and maybe some other collaborators uh, doing this kind of project, because very often we first have music memorized uh, studied and then choreographer get in and add movements and then light comes in and set at props. That's very often the way how music theaters are developed. But as uh, Shira mentioned, we are developing things simultaneously. That means that we at every rehearsal work on team building, on sculpturing uh, our minds on uh, uh, opening creativity, on body movement, on sp spoken word, visual elements, costume, everything is present every day. So things are developing together. And if one element or, for example, music needs support uh, in something else, that's why we change it again. And then we see, okay, this place doesn't work well. Uh, let's move it around. It's it's really a lot of um, improvisation, but lead it improvisation, not free improvisation. It's a lot of um, I would I call this sculpting. Sculpting is a part of my uh, method working with ensembles where I'm trying with certain, let's say, exercises or, or, or actions to remove some obstacles which we as a performers might have, could be psychological, could be a physical, uh, you know, prejustices, whatever we have. I try to slowly remove that white sculpting, taking away and get a sculpture at the end. So I'm using all these little methodical, uh, didactical methods to lead a performance through the process. Uh, sometimes these new experiences are also a little bit painful because now we are changing our uh you know, the way how we sing, the way how we are at the rehearsals, the way how we walk, the way how we behave, the way how we feel each other. So it is a laboratorium, not only of voices and movements, but also of emotions. And a laboratorium of emotions is, as you can imagine, very sensitive thing, especially in a culture where individualism is quite uh, strong. Um, I'm coming from a culture well, where we still have a little bit less stress on individual and maybe a little bit more on collective. So I have this experience uh, how to build collectiveness. Uh, and I think that when we are establish a good ensemble, good collective play, that's the magic in that. When you start to feel others and be a part of this amazing instrument of human thoughts, emotions, bodies, voices, eyes, sparkling eyes, uh, all this uh, magical thing of belonging to something bigger than you are. Uh, I hope to bring performers to this zone. I, I had a lot of experiences of uh, um, how beautiful it is to be in this special zone when you don't exist anymore, you as an individual, but you become a part of something bigger where you just float in this atmosphere of being with others. 
And I hope that we will have as much as possible of these magic moments because effort is worth to do to have this experience. That That's my goal. And we already had a few of these moments and I hope to have them more and more. And if we are in this atmosphere and in this zone, I'm sure that audience understand that that's something special, something magical happening on the stage and it somehow uh, invite them to join and to be part of it. I imagine that this interpretation of this notion of a uniformity, both of, of, of spirit, of mind, of perspective, sort of all coming together, uh, is quite challenging for most, I think, U.S. groups. I'm, I'm just sort of trying to imagine a group other than Kitka performing this, right? Like, I, when I think of most of the sounds of, of most ensembles, I would describe them mostly as... Um, uh, an emergent bel canto sound, right? That like what performers bring in, in ensembles like that is like, well, this is the sound of my voice and it's quite beautiful and I will sacrifice some of my individuality to create this this sound. Do you think that this, I mean, it, it seems like it takes a very special type of ensemble to be able to perform this kind of piece or this kind of music. Do you imagine that other ensembles could pick up this piece? It just seems like the delta between, you know, what, U.S. choirs and ensembles typically do versus what tip Kitka would typically do is huge. And I just imagine what what might it be like for a group that defines itself as having an emergent bel canto sound might do with a piece like this. Could they perform it? I mean, uh, they could perform it because music is um, uh, not really traditional, so it's written uh, neutral. And it's uh, the way how we are uh, approaching to sound uh, for, for sound production of uh, Kitka singers is that we are defining for each individual piece what color we would like to have, what um, ornamentation we can employ here, what ataka is going to be at the beginning of phrase. So we are shaping uh, each piece with a, a enormous knowledge and experience of uh, an extremely big vocabulary of sounds Kitka has. Uh, and as I said, we are discussing on the way how to, what to use, how to perform it. It could be performed by other uh, ensembles as well, but it would sound, of course, completely different because what Kitka has is a enormous vocabulary of sounds and techniques. Um, and of course, that's a, a, a lot of individuality in that. We were talking earlier about co collectiveness on unifiness of uh, people being one instrument, but on the other side, we are still keeping all uh, crazy voices Kitka can produce. And we would like to have all this individualism still present. Uh, that's why this is tricky, which uh, what you cut to keep to get this, what what to keep not to lose the other things. It's constantly, you know, this rock and roll about balances uh, between this extremely individual which is needed for this kind of piece and again as a one instrument uh one collective uniqueness that's a challenge and it's i think yeah i think the uh, other thing that's challenging and different is it's this kind of this innate um oh, what is the word uh where kika is not accustomed to working with a director, typically. I mean, we have our roles. I'm the artistic and executive director. Janet often will lead rehearsals, etc. But sort of having the outside person looking at the totality of what's being created, who's not actually actively singing in the ensemble, is a new experience for us. And so we have developed an organizational culture where we've developed a certain kind of interdependency to realize a certain kind of performance and a certain kind of vision um, with much fewer moving pieces than what uh, Baba entails. And so for us, it's also 
an interesting new stretch to engage someone like Carmina, who has this very evolved notion of collective expression and collective performance practice as that outside director, authoritarian figure, uh, whose vision we're trying to realize in a participatory, but also uh, a, a deeply trusting kind of um, surrender to the process kind of way, because we're we're so used to always like having to solve our own problems and, you know, and a collective of, you know, eight or nine Bay Area women, you know, it's not always the most efficient process. Um, so it's this interesting question of we're, we're being asked to be, on, on one hand, more of a collective um, uh, organism, and then also a more um, kind of surrendered organism to be, you know, formed and shaped by Carmina as, as the director. It's an interesting sort of dialogue and uh, very dynamic process. Yeah, I think uh, what I realized is that actually uh, we in Europe are actually, let's say, evolving our theater practices from directors' theater concept. So that director concept is the 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 first thing, and I think that states, uh, America, United States of America, you you don't really have this tradition of directors' theater. I think the role of director here um, differs from our understanding in Europe, from starting from German theater or uh, Eastern um, big names, which we all are kind of uh, uh, derivates in our cultures. I think this is also a little bit cultural difference. So there, there are a lot of uh, cultural differences which we are a meeting on this uh, journey together. Yeah, we are all learning other new, uh, let's say, yeah, experiences. Hmm. I'm curious, in Carmina, in your research and learning more about these sworn virgins, was ensemble music making, is that something that is a part of that culture? Actually, the, the reason why I was so interested in uh, Sword Virgins is because, as you know, I was always trying to find interesting contexts for my uh, female ensemble of Carmina Slovenica. So, okay, I did a repertoire by uh, non-composers in medieval monasteries. And so I was always trying to find themes or repertoires. And then I found it that Actually, um, swore virgins were allowed to perform music in compared to other female from this society who were, of course, performing music, but never publicly, only private at home. So that was also very interesting uh, motivation for me to go on with this idea because they were actually allowed to play, for example, certain instruments which were totally connected to patriarchal male power. And there, there were only two ways how female can play this gusle, this very traditional instrument, the strongest uh, patriarchal uh, instrument. Only two ways that women can play were being blind. So there is no uh, femininity in this body or being uh manlish being you know without this sex as it is in the case of um swore virgin so that's why also this uh uh idea of one string instrument which is very important for male culture culture in balkan countries is now played by female performers. So we take this instrument in our hands. I, I find this also as a uh, certain, let's say, message way. Did the, did the content or the stories themselves change? Because now you've got me like shooting forward into 21st century, you know, like female rappers who are, 
you know, take, I mean, it's strange to think of that as being an analog, but there are some similarities there, right? Where, you know, if you're Megan the Stallion or you're, you know, whoever, you're taking back some of the narrative. I mean, some of it is quite in the opposite direction, right? It's not, they're not, certainly not sworn virgins. And uh, it's, you know, it's about taking back the power of that sexuality. Is the content for the story within Baba, or, or even just these women who were, blind or sworn virgins or mannish that they were allowed to play the instruments could they tell their own stories or were you still telling the same stories of the patriarchy i mean could you adapt those instruments and use them to tell different stories i guess is the question did it ever flip that the content on its head oh that's a very uh amazing question um actually there were always two ways of uh telling stories uh regarding according to sex, male version and female version, male tunes, female tunes, male ornaments, female ornaments. So uh, there are not really many records uh, about how actually swore virgins perform music. I was trying to get more and more uh, uh, about this, but unfortunately, I was not able to find uh, information how they actually perform, if it was male style or their own style. Mm. I have no answer yet. Um, Shira, why why don't you uh, give us a little sneak peek? Maybe you can just give us a couple of teasers about the production itself, where it's going to be put on, and and some of the just a little bit, just just a little bit. So the world premiere performances of Baba, The Life and Death of Stana, will be taking place at Z Space, which is um, in the sort of border region between the Mission District and South of Market in San Francisco. It's a really interesting performance space. I believe it used to be an old cannery, a factory. Uh, So it has a sort of... um, dark kind of industrial kind of rugged kind of both kind of historical and contemporary vibe um and uh during carmina's first uh visit with us we had a completely different idea of what kind of venue was going to house the premiere of this work and um and carmina immediately when she saw the venue we had in mind was just sort of like no (laughs) (laughs) and so um so we did a a site visit at z space and she said no this is this is the space for this um and it's really uh, the home of a lot of uh, the san francisco bay area's most um experimental um, dance theater. Uh, I've seen a few uh, music theater productions there as well. So uh, is that where like Joe Good and like ODC? Yeah, from there. Yes, and uh, it's a very interesting space, and uh, and offers, I think, a lot of creative potential for the more um, scenic and lighting um, aspects of the production, which are many. I would say that. Um, the visuals of this production are of a scale unlike anything Keith has ever uh, embarked upon before. Even the collaborations that we've done with ACT were very simple <laughs> by comparison. So, so we're very excited about that. So February uh, 23rd through 26th, we have three evening performances on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and a Sunday matinee. Um, tickets are currently on sale and selling fast. We only have four performance dates, so we're really encouraging people to reserve their tickets early. Um, and folks can find more information about it at kitka, K-I-T-K-A, dot org slash Baba. Perfect. That's exciting. I got to buy my tickets. <clears throat> Jack already has tickets, right? I do. I do have yeah. tickets. I'm very excited to see it. I bought the special t- Well, I don't know. Should we? There's there's range of tickets, too, so I can't wait to see what the difference in the experience will be. I may have to come more than one night just so we can see it. Well, I, will, I would encourage that because I have to say the, the only time that I saw a full Carmina Slovenica production, um, which was at the Prototype Festival in 2015 in New York, 
York. I bought tickets, I, I think, for opening night. And I went back three more times to see it. Really? I did. I didn't know that. I did. <laughs> because um, I wish we were able to do a much longer run, but the, the challenges of, of resources and space availability, space availability and Carmina's busy international schedule just we're cramming it all into this very short run. But I do think there's so many layers of meaning. And because it's a non-narrative production where it's really upon the the witness to the performance to, to create their own um, narrative thread or their own story or their own sort of the way you would interpret a dream. Um, mm. I really feel like it is the kind of production that warrants multiple viewing. It's uh, it's sort of, it's funny, I'm just going to throw in a side note here, but it's like Harvey Firestein just wrote a new memoir called, it, I Was Better Last Night. And, <laughs> you know, and he and he he sort of jokes about that a little bit, but he says, you know, the, the reason it's that, he says, it's, of course it was better last night, because every night it evolves. You know, every time you see it, we're smarter and we're different and, you know, Every time it just gets better and better, and the experience is different every time. So, I, I would definitely encourage everyone who's listening to check it out. As, check it out first of all, but then you're right. I mean, every experience of that performance will be totally different, which is spectacular. So, kitcut.org/baba, February 23rd through the 26th. At Fantastic. Z Space in San Francisco. Awesome. Yeah. So great to chat with both of you today. Carmen, I remember after we got off the call last time a year ago or so, I remember saying to Giacomo, wow, she is a force. (laughs) There was something about your presence, but your passion and... There's just something exciting to uh, to chat with you again today. Just brings that right back, and then to see you on my computer screen right now, right next to Shira, and to have both of you so impassioned about this project and so excited to bring it to life. It's just it's just wonderful to see you know such strong female forces in the choral world bringing something new to the Bay Area. Um, I know that Giacomo and I are both excited, and I'm sure all of our listeners will be as well. Thank you so much for uh, hosting you. us again and hope to see you soon. Yeah, we're excited. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Ciao. We're going to wrap up today's episode with one more music selection. Back in October of 2010, Kitka was on tour in Georgia and Armenia. And while in Tbilisi, they met with the women's choir Tutarcella, directed by Tamar Buadze. It was a beautiful exchange of music, and Kitka came away having learned Heyamoli, a love song from La Zona. Here's the rough translation. Let's say one or two words about your beauty. I'm going to leave my mother and father, and I'll be yours, yours only. Every one is satisfied, but you're not happy. Enjoy. Hello. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast. Be sure to check out episode extras and subscribe at inunisonpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social media at inunisonpod. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think. Choir retreat dues collected by Chorus Dolores, who already has her tickets for the world premiere of Baba. Do you... In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our transcripts have been diligently edited by IOCSF member and friend of the pod, Fausto Daus. And our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Please be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.